Turning finally in our Bibles to our sermon text this morning, uh, back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, and we're this morning in chapter number 31, Genesis chapter 31, uh, there are 50 chapters, so we're like 60% of the way there, okay, uh, getting there, and this morning we're going to read uh, verse 1, I'm going to stop reading at verse 42, and uh, you notice also a little sermon notes page that's printed for you there in the bulletin, it has uh, as a passage as well, that's for mostly for our kids to be able to follow along quickly and find things fast. Uh, there's some questions uh, and, and there's an outline as well for you. So Genesis chapter 31, let's begin reading together uh, at verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. We see that wonderful presence of God once again. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field, these were his wives, uh, where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock before uh, bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me 
so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, the tambourine and lyre. And why do you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your good shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them, meaning these uh, teraphim, uh, these household gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Le- uh, Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, uh, Zilhah and Bilhah, uh, uh, but he did not find them, the household gods, that is. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Meaning it's that time of the month, right? So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, Why is my, uh, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? See, uh, see it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and notice this, uh, this, this title for God, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. And all of God's people say to these words, Amen. Because I was afraid. Uh, Jacob's words here are a very honest assessment, aren't they? Of his, uh, his condition feeling situation before his father-in-law, Laban. Fear is something that we all experience. Some of us kids, we might be afraid of spiders, right? We might have arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Some of us are afraid of dying. Some of us are afraid of the future. Some of us are afraid of our own souls. What will happen to us spiritually, daily, because of Satan? and his schemes, and so we live in fear. All of us fear, because fear is a part of our fallen humanity. Uh, the Christian uh, country singer Zach Williams once said, uh, saying, fear is a liar. We all fear. Uh, we all fear. Yet, in the beginning, God 
made us differently. Not to fear with uh, what we consider fear, right? To be scared, to be afraid. Uh, But to fear, to reverence, to honor God himself, to trust God alone, to expect all good from him only, love, fear, honor him with our whole heart, as our Heidelberg Catechism teaches us. And so as we come this morning again to Genesis, we return to the life of Jacob. And uh, he's fleeing from his father-in-law, Laban, and he's doing so in fear. Now, if you remember the story of Jacob, he, 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 he got to Laban's house 20 years earlier because he fled his brother. Why? He was afraid, wasn't he? He was afraid of what? Dying, right? His brother Esau dying, right? His brother's going to come and get him. And now he's afraid again, this time of his father-in-law. So his, his life has, has had a lot of fear in it, a lot of fear, a lot of jitters, a lot of worries from beginning uh, to end. Uh, but as we come again to this historical narrative, we call these historical narratives, they're just accounts of what happened, right? The historical narratives. Uh, just uh, to remind you, as I've been uh, reminding you, trying to remind you at least, uh, when you read narratives in the Bible, these stories, and a lot of times it, it, it reads kind of like a travelogue, doesn't it? Like he went here, she went there, this happened, that happened, they did this, this, and that. Um, but we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? Okay, what is God doing here? And we have to ask that question because, uh, as I've said so many times, that little Sunday school uh, saying that history is his story, right? It's the story that God himself uh, is working out his redeeming plan, his saving plan. And so, uh, despite Jacob here fleeing in fear, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Lord doing? What is God doing here? Why is that important? So may the Holy Spirit powerfully cause us to see today that uh, we shouldn't fear, but we should ever become more confident in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, what's God doing here? What's God doing here? In verses 1 through 16, we, we have the Lord's promised presence. The Lord's promised presence. In the middle of his fears, he comes to know, again, the promised presence of God. What's God's presence? Those of you, I think most of us were here last Sunday. What's God's presence? What did I say about it last Sunday? What is God's presence? Is, it, is, 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 is God in heaven and then he sort of sends this sort of emanation from him, this detached thing that comes? What's God's presence? It's God, isn't it? It's God. Graydon, he listens, right? Amen, brother. <laughs> the presence of God is God himself, Okay. And I, and I want to make a point of that because we, we can think sometimes as, you know, there's God and then he has all these like little parts and bits and pieces. You know, he's, he's a bit, you know, gracious and he's partially holy and he's, you know, and he's over there, but he's kind of over here sometimes, his presence. No, his presence is him, okay? His presence is him. When the psalmist says, seek his presence, seek his face continually, it's not saying his face or his presence is something different than him. No, it's to seek him. And just like you would want to go to somebody that you love and care about and you see them face to face, seek the presence of God. Seek God and his face continually. 
And so God, who is everywhere, we call that omnipresence, or he's everywhere at once, isn't he? Because he's God. Uh, God also at times, in a very special way, reveals or manifests or makes more visible or more, uh, more uh, uh, there's, there, there's a more sense of his presence, more sensible uh, of his presence uh, that, that we can be, we can be more sensible of it. At times, God makes his presence known. And so that's kind of what he's describing here. We know God is everywhere, that God knows all things. God sees all things. God is everywhere present in his power, as our catechism says. But there's a very particular sense of that. And that's what the Lord is promising here. You see, it wouldn't comfort us very much for, for, for us to say to ourselves or for me to say to you as a pastor, uh, maybe in the hospital, you know, the Lord is everywhere at once, brother. The Lord is omnipresent, sister. How would that comfort you, right? Of course he's everywhere, but I want to know that he's here, right? That's, that's what this presence of God is. It's not just that he's everywhere in a generic sense, but that he's here. He's with me here and now. And so we can see why Jacob needed to hear the Lord's promised presence again at the very outset of our story. Because back in chapter 29 last Sunday, Jacob married Leah, and he was tricked to marry Leah, and then he married Rachel, the one that he loved. And recall that strange thing that Laban said uh, when he heard of Jacob. Uh, he, he, he said in chapter 29, verse 14, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. When he heard that Jacob had come from the promised land, the same family, family, the same household, the same extended family, he said, Surely you are but my bone and my flesh. Verse 14. Now, I, didn't make any, I made nothing of that last Sunday, but just to point it out again uh, here for the first time. Uh, in, in, in the ancient Near East, that's the, the culture, the world in which the book of Genesis takes place, uh, the language of you are my bone, you are my flesh, was used in adoption when you would adopt somebody. Because at that time, Laban had no sons. That's why his daughter, Rachel, has to go out and to get water for his flocks. Very unusual, right? To, to send out your daughter. Right? This is a different world than we live in, right? Different world. Um, but he calls Jacob, my bone, my flesh. He has no sons. And so he wants to adopt Jacob as his own. But the story takes a turn for the worse. Verse 1, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father. So now he has sons. This is 20 years later. Jacob taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he's, ta- he's gained his wealth. Even worse, it takes a turn for the worse, even more so. There's a sense of betrayal now that Jacob has by his father-in-law. He took in Jacob when he had nothing. Remember, Abraham sent Isaac with all these flocks and gifts to find a wife. Jacob goes with nothing. All he has is a rock, right, at night to lay his head on for a pillow. We read this, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Look look at that at verse 2. In fact, Jacob lets us in on what this meant when he told his wives, verse 5 through 7, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. 
So Jacob's kind of fallen out of favor now that, that Laban has sons. Okay? You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Jacob makes a point of saying that ten times. He moved the goalposts, we say, in our, in our uh, way of speaking. He, he changed the terms ten different times. Once again, once again, we see this dysfunctional family, extended family to which Jacob belongs. It's a mess. Right? He, he's a deceiver. He's a cheater. Uh, his mom was. Now he goes and finds this wife, and the father-in-law is. He, he switched the woman that he was to marry. He changed the terms ten times, and so forth. So, again, we read a story like this, and it just encourages us to say it once again. Whether you are a believer or not, that God loves and God saves dysfunctional people and families. Single parents, divorced parents, struggling parents, all kinds. God saves sinners. And we see that again here in the Jacob story, that God loves sinners. He, he didn't wait for Jacob to, to get all fixed up and nice and tidy and holy and good, and then God saved him. No, God saved him. He was a mess. The whole thing is a mess. God loves sinners. And so, to Jacob, who is a product of dysfunction himself, and now participating, of course, in his own sort of dysfunction in the story, the Lord says to him, Return to the land of your fathers, verse 3. I will be with you. I will be with you. He promised that to him earlier, didn't he? Do you remember that? Back in chapter 28, when he left for Padanaram, he promised him that he would be with him on his journey. He promised this very thing to his father Isaac way back when, uh, when he journeyed in days of famine, chapter 26, for example. The Lord once again promises that when the people of God are on the move in the wilderness, he will be with them. When they are alone, he will be with them. When they are disillusioned, he will be with them. When they are cheated, he will be with them. When they are tricked, he will be with them. When they are sinned against, he will be with them. You get the point? I will be with you. And it's great to see here Jacob's growing in faith. He now confesses this reality. Verse 5, the God of my father has been with me. As he faithfully recounts to his wives the dream God gave him, notice what the Lord said, I am the God of Bethel, back in chapter 28, where he saw the vision and he anointed the, the rocky pillow and called it the gate of God, the house of God, the gate of heaven, so forth. Jacob hears again the promise, I am with you, and he re reaffirms that the Lord has truly been with him. You see how amazing that is? That he's, he's, as he goes on to describe, he's been here for 20 years. Seven years for one wife he worked. He got tricked. Seven more years for the, for the wife that he actually wanted. 14 years. Six more years for all these flocks and herds. 20 years. 20 years. And you've changed the terms 10 different times. Was God with him? Where was God in those 20 years? Where was God in the first seven years when he worked thinking 
that the woman that he loved was going to be his wife and ends up not being her when he wakes up in the morning. Where, where was God? Right there. Seven more years, he gets the wife that he wants. Six more years for all the flocks and herds. And the, the whole time, Laban is changing the terms. Where was God in all that? Where was God, loved ones? It's okay to say it. He was right there with him, wasn't he? God is with us. God is with his children. Not just in the good times, but also in the bad times. And the Lord points Jacob back to this reality that he's always been there. He points him back to his word, notice, the promise, to reassure him once again that he really has been present the whole time and he's going to continue to be present with him. Go out, go back to the land of your fathers. I will be with you to never leave nor forsake. This is so important for us, so beneficial for us, so helpful for us, because we, like Jacob, members of God's pilgrim church, members of his family uh, in this world that live in conflict at times, uh, 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 within kingdoms of the world and nations and peoples that are in conflict with God. I mean, we sang this morning about uh, Christ having dominion, but yet the, the Psalms tell us that kings and peoples and rulers and nations, they don't submit to God. And so here we are as citizens of one country, one nation here this morning, most of us at least, some citizens of this, 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 this nation or wherever it is that we, that we belong. But for the most part, we can confess that those who lead us don't have the same understanding of Jesus Christ and his kingship over us. And so we live in conflict with the kingdom of the world, just like Jacob here in conflict with Laban and his little sort of fiefdom, little kingdom there, uh, his land and his flock and so forth. And the Lord wants us to know this morning how you and I can be assured of the Lord's presence. Just like with Jacob, it's the word of God. It's the promise of God that assures us. How can you know? How can I know? How can we know that the Lord has been with us throughout all good times and bad, thick and thin, health and sickness, life and death? How can we know that he has been, he is, and he will always be with us? How can we know this? Because God, in his word, has assured us. Now, God's word, his promises, come to us in four different forms. Let me just mention this quickly before we move on. How can you and I be assured that God is present with us? His word. But his word throughout scripture is described in four different forms. The word of God comes to us in four different ways. The word of God comes to us in oral form. God's word, his presence, his promises come to us in oral or spoken or in preached form. And so he says to Jacob, he speaks, I'm with you. I'm with you. Notice, God is there, but yet he speaks it, doesn't he? There's an oral form of his word. And so this is why we can say with full confidence that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The preaching of the word, the, the spoken word is the word of God. Secondly, the word takes written form. We know this. The, uh, the word takes written form. God takes a special care for his children down to the ages to pass down 
the story of salvation from one generation to another. He wants our children to be able to see with their own eyes and to hear their own ears the record of what God has done for his children in the midst of all their sufferings. And so we have the Bible. The preached word, the written word, the word also takes incarnate form. How can we know that God is present with us? We hear the gospel proclaimed to us. We can read and hear the gospel upon pages, but we know that the word is also taken on incarnate form. The eternal word has become flesh in our Lord Jesus Christ. God's eternal wisdom became our Lord in the apex of human history. To to be near his creation, to be with his people. He was always there. He's the creator, but yet... To be present, right? To be there with them. The word also takes visible form. The word also takes visible form. So we we have the oral word, the preaching of the word. We have the written word. We, We can pick up the texts themselves. We know the incarnate form of the word, our Lord Jesus Christ. But the word also takes visible form. We can hear, we can read, and we can by faith receive the incarnate Savior Jesus. But what about when we still, when we still doubt the presence of God? He gives us his word in visible form. Where's that? The sacraments. The sacraments. The waters of baptism the wine and bread of Holy Communion, the visible form of the word. This is, I was just talking to a friend, this is why we don't have sacraments apart from the word. Because the sacraments have have no meaning apart from the word, because they are visible words. We can have preaching without sacraments, but we cannot have sacraments without preaching. Because they are a visible form of the word. And so we need to explain them. We need to proclaim them. And so God communicates his presence to us, not just through hearing and seeing and tasting, uh, or, or he does communicate his presence, uh, not, not just through hearing, uh, but through the seeing and tasting, the holding of the sacraments. And just as the Lord pointed Jacob to the word, he revealed at Bethel, and all these various forms, in the same way he points us, this morning, to have full confidence in our Savior's presence with us in our pilgrim Christian life. Now, secondly, and much more shortly than that, I promise, okay, much more shortly than that, what's God doing here? What's God doing here? He's promising his presence, right, the word. But notice, secondly, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, which we read part of it, Notice the Lord's produced protection. It goes without saying that when the Lord is present, he protects his children. So Jacob also experienced the protection the Lord produced in his own dire situation. He experienced that almighty power of God that is ever-present with his people. Despite all that Laban had done to Jacob, Jacob could still confess, notice verse 5, but God did not permit him, Laban, to harm me. Why? Because God is powerful. Because God is a protector, the shield and buckler of his 
children. And so Jacob takes his wives, his sons, his daughters, his herds, and he begins the journey across the desert to the promised land in Canaan. Once again, Jacob, uh, Jacob lives up to his name and tricks Laban in going out, leaving Laban's lands to go back to the land of his father. On the way out, Rachel, there's a strange thing in our story, the strange account of Rachel, one of his wives, the wife that he loved most, she steals her father's household gods. When Laban finds out about all of this, he pursues Jacob for seven days and finally catches up to him, but God, right? But God. The, the story has an ominous feel. They leave for three days. Laban hears about it. He tracks them down in the desert. He finds them in the hill country. He overtakes them. It seems like it's doom and gloom, but God, but God. Just when Laban was about to strike and do whatever it, is, what, uh, whatever it was he was going to do, We've already seen what he's capable of doing, all the tricks and schemes, the ten times he's changed the terms of the, of, of, of the sort of contract between him and his own son-in-law. God appears. God intervenes in a dream. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Verse 24, verse 29. And while Laban sounds very innocent towards Jacob, doesn't he sound very innocent? Verse 27, I, I might have sent you away with mirth and songs. Tambourine and lyre, right? We might have had a big party. Right? And sent you out in style. His true intentions are revealed by the fact that God had to intervene. God had to do something here. Or else Jacob was, was, a, was done for. He was a goner. He was toast. But Laban thinks he's got them. Even though God has intervened. He still thinks he's got them because his household gods are gone. These, these teraphim, these little... These little idols, these little clay idols that in the ancient Near Eastern society they would have been passed down from father to the heir. That's why it's so important here. The heir of the household got the teraphim, got the gods, the household gods. Now, the, here's the irony of the, fun, the, the funny thing in the story, at least, is now Rachel, the wife of Jacob, has them, not the sons of Laban, uh, even more so, most the, the, the sons are saying that Jacob's taken all the, all, all, all the inheritance. No, in fact, it's, it's Rachel who has this inheritance, not the sons. But even more so, we're told that, she, that, that, that when Laban goes around and sort of violates the Fourth Amendment, right? He's illegal search and seizure in all the tents, okay? He's here doing what he's not supposed to do. What, 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 what does Rachel do with the gods? She sits on them. And then when he goes around sort of feeling around the tents for all the stuff, she doesn't get up. Why? It's that time of the month, Dad. I can't get up, right? You see the irony there? She's treating uh, these gods as unholy things that they are. She's defiling these household gods just by sitting on them. By doing so, she is confessing. The Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God, the God of her husband Jacob is the true God. And all that leads to this sort of pact of non-aggression, this amnesty between Jacob and Laban, you see at the end of the story there, uh, and so forth. And Jacob publicly confesses his faith 
that God has powerfully preserved. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, what a great title, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God, notice that, God saw my affliction. What a great line, God saw my affliction. But the, here's the problem for us, though, as, as those reading the story here, uh, as believers this morning. So, so Jacob can, can confess that God in his presence and his power has seen my affliction and he's prospered me, he's protected me, he's been present with me. But here we are this morning. Well, what, what, what happens though when the God that we know is present with us, who's promised to be with us at the end of the age, to never leave us nor forsake us, to not give us stones when we ask for bread, but what happens though when, when, we, when we pray to him and we ask him, we beg him, and we believe? And trust in him to powerfully protect us from whatever affliction it is. And it doesn't happen. So what do we, what do we say when God doesn't in power protect us? When he sees my affliction but it feels like he's really far away and he's doing nothing about it. We all, know it. we all know what I'm talking about, right? We, we pray for, 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 for someone not to die. Lord, heal him. Heal her. Lord, be present. We pray, God, make this path plain and clear. But it's a complete jumbled mess. What happens when we, we do all the right stuff, we believe all the right stuff, but God doesn't intervene in his power that actually allows affliction. I know it's not mentioned here, but it's just one of those things that, again, we, we, we can't read these verses and we can, we, we don't want to read these verses out of context and say, you know, here it is, health, wealth, and prosperity, the promise of God for every single one who believes that everything's going to be swell in your life. I can't let you leave thinking that today. Call me Debbie Downer or Danny Downer, but I can't let you leave, okay, on that sort of... I can't let you leave on a false high note. I want you to leave on a real high note, not a false high note. What happens when God doesn't do anything about my affliction? Well, we've we, we, we got to stop and, 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 and realize that God is all wise. If this God really is God, if he's almighty, he's all-powerful, he's everywhere, he's all-present, he can do all things, he's made all things, he sustains all things, he can save all things... He can renew all things. If this God really is, then isn't he also wise? I mean, doesn't he know what he's doing? We may not know what he's doing. We may want to know. We may not want, we may not want to know. But we should know that God is, is all wise. And so sometimes it could be, the Bible teaches us in other places, that in his wisdom... He might want you and I to learn some patience. I mean, we don't want to be patient, do we? I'm, like, I'm, I'm a very impatient person myself. I'm sure we all have that sense of impatience in our lives. 
But isn't it true that God at times wants us, his children, to learn just a little smidge of patience? It's okay to learn some patience. It's okay for God not to intervene, right, when we want, how we want, where we want, and so forth, and as much as we want. It's okay that we have to learn a little bit of patience. Maybe that's what's going on. Could be. Sometimes the Bible teaches us that God allows affliction. He even at times, the Bible gives a very strong sense of he actually sends affliction. We saw that last Sunday night in our, in, our, in our psalm, Psalm 71, that God even sends affliction. Can it be that God in his wisdom might be teaching you, me, something in our affliction to teach us about our own sins? the consequences of our sins. We don't want to say that every particular sin leads to a very particular spiritual sort of affliction. We don't want to say that at all. But there are general principles in the Bible that at times God can teach us about our own sins by the afflictions that he sends upon us. We, we live in a very naturalistic world these days. And, you know, we, we see a hurricane come and and uh, the first thing we think about is, you know, well, the president didn't give enough money at the right time, and they didn't, they didn't prepare the FEMA at the right time, and, you know, it, we turn into politics. But doesn't, doesn't our homeowner's insurance talk about acts of God? I just got the, 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 the annual, you know, you can, you can opt into your earthquake insurance here in California, you know, and it, you read through it, and you're like, this is interesting. They actually calls it an act of God. We don't believe that, do we? We don't believe that, do we? I mean, come on, this is, it's, it's just plates shaking against each other. That's all it is. It's just too much water in the air, too much wind, you know, just naturalistic forces. Sometimes God sends things, doesn't he, to teach us about our own sins, our own weaknesses. And can it be? Can it be that God in his wisdom at times doesn't send help to heal somebody? To, 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 to raise someone up from death's door? Can it be at times that God in his wisdom wants that child of God with him even more than we want him or her to stay? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am, ab- uh, Paul had that struggle, didn't he? He wanted to stay with you, but yet be away from the Lord, but yet to be with the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with him. He had that struggle, didn't he? Sometimes God in his wisdom may not send us healing and help and affliction because he wants us to be in heaven. He wants us to be in his presence forever. So here's God doing these great things. Here's God promising his presence. Here's God protecting Jacob. Here's God doing all these great, wonderful gospel things, pointing, pointing the Israelites forward. Just as Jacob, whose name is soon to be changed to Israel, just as he prospers in a land that's not his own, is persecuted there, leaves at God's command, is then pursued out into the wilderness but then is protected and delivered from his enemies by the Lord himself, so too the Israelites, the descendants of Israel, Jacob, so too they are going to experience this. And they had just experienced it. When Moses wrote these words, the Israelites had come out. 
They too had gone through this very same experience. They too could look to their father Jacob and see their own lives in him. He experienced what we experienced. But just as God delivered us, so too he delivered him back in his day. And so in this way, the story points us to the reality of the Lord's presence and protection, not just amongst his ancient people, but at these acts of God in this story were meant to bring us to Jesus. The true climax of the story, the true Jacob, the true Israel of God, who came into the world that he made, not to prosper, but to prosper our souls. Not to be served, but to serve. Not to persecute his enemies because they've sinned against us, no, but that he might be persecuted by sinners. Not to flee from the cross in fear, but to embrace it for our sakes. Not to hide from the devil who pursued him, but to be found by the devil. To be bound by the devil uh, devil in a tomb, only to be raised from the dead gloriously, triumphantly, that he might crush the serpent's head, and in fact, to crush fear itself. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible tell us in the New Testament that, that we have all lived a whole lifetime in fear, yet by the cross of Jesus Christ, he's delivered us from the fear and tyranny of the devil. And so here, ultimately, is a picture of Jesus Christ who is present with us, his children today, his people today, and who protects us as he sees fit, because he's powerful to do it. Fear not. Fear not, beloved pilgrim people of God. Fear not, wandering Jacob, Rachel, Leah, whoever it is that you are this morning. Fear not, your Savior has triumphed. We sang of him this morning, didn't we? The Savior's triumphed. Let's live like it. Let's act like it. He's near to you in your sufferings. He's coming again in power to deliver you from every single oppression. Let's pray. Our great, our gracious God, we thank you again for the promises of your word and the wonderful stories that we have of you here doing great things. And we, we ask, Lord, that we, that we would partake of these great things by faith and know your presence uh, this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper that visible form of your promised word. Assure us of your presence. Assure us of your power to save. Help us in our affliction. And Lord, we pray that that we would live lives in your presence, conscious of your presence, and that, that the world would see and know and experience too that wonderful saving presence and power of our God through us. And we ask this all in his name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's uh, stand together in response. Our last song this morning um, before communion is printed out for you. There's an insert in the bulletin.